Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Well, this Everyone has been destroyed because of this freak. I won't allow it. These babies just saved this lame fast party. <laughs> Freddy Krueger here, and you're listening to Mike the Birdman and the rest of the crew this week in Geek.net. Hey guys, what's going on? You are listening to This Week in Geek.net. I'm your host, Mike the Birdman. And well, today, guys, it is the first interview of 2023. Me and Alex are back from hiatus. But you may notice I am without my rather large compatriot today. He is nowhere to be found. May you say he's asleep at the switch. But I'm bringing in another transport from another place in a Small town in Ohio, which seems to have an international airport, a NHL-sized hockey rink, a medical school for some bizarre reason, and can take you all the way to San Francisco. I'm talking about Heinrich Kuto. He is one of the hosts over at Welcome to Primetime, a Freddy's Nightmares review podcast. He's also a filmmaker who's made tons of horror movies and television stuff. Lots to talk about today, and I want to welcome Heinrich to the show. Buddy, I am so excited to talk to you since I first heard your show back in October. No, I'm thrilled, too, and talk about Kismet. I think you saw it, like, on a random Reddit post I made. Yeah, yeah, like, it was just (laughs) one of those times, I it was, like, Halloween, and I'm just kind of fucking around, and I'm looking on Reddit, and your podcast popped up, and it's weird, because I've been podcasting since 2007, but I don't listen to podcasts. The last two years of the pandemic has really changed those listening habits. And I'm like, you know what? This sounds interesting. And I started listening to your podcast because Freddy's nightmares is not something I'm totally familiar with because to get a Blu-ray or a DVD in this, you have to live in Europe or Australia and you guys watch it on 2B TV in the United States. But for some reason, Canada gets the middle finger and I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to listen anyway, because I had a copy I got from a, from a convention years and years back. And it has been a wonderful listening experience. Well, thank you. I'm glad. And yeah, the reason what brought the show about was the fact that it's all of a sudden on 2B TV, which is the first time in 
decades that Freddy's Nightmares has been readily available to stream in any way or watch in any way anywhere. I think for a while it was on Chiller and the El Rey Network, which again, in Canada, good luck getting. Yeah, TV rights are very, uh, this is speaking, putting on my my, uh, movie maker hat, TV rights are very, very tumultuous because there is a lot, even more value in segmenting the markets in television than there is even in feature films. Yeah, like in Canada, we have Bell, we have Rogers, and then we have some of the smaller television providers. But when it comes to streaming services, we have Crave, which is run by Bell, and then uh, Rogers can like spread that out, and then Rogers can send that to like their own service, which they had their own VOD service for a while, but they didn't have their own original streaming shows. And television rights gets stupid up here because now we don't get half of the cool shit Paramount Plus gets in Canada because of Amazon Prime and Netflix. I don't think we get everything the United States gets again because certain companies get whatever, as you just said, it's, it's so stupid. Like I would honestly, if you told me I could get Hulu, in Canada and it cost me 10 bucks. Fuck. Yeah. I will pay that all day, but well, and it, no. it gets trickier too, because when you have a show like Freddy's nightmares, basically if you have a show that's pre maybe 2010, then they definitely did not package the North American rights as one package. That's a much more recent concept. So newer shows, they might allow to be both in Canada and the U S but older shows, it's just, um, a relic of an older time. So they have them divvied out. It can be, it can be very confusing. And believe me, I mean, I've sold movies to Europe and China and India and Malaysia. It, it gets complicated very quickly. <laughs> now you mentioned you've sold movies. So let's talk about a little, a little bit about you, Heinrich, because you have made movies for, like decades. Like I looked on your like IMDb and I think like your earliest credits, like in like the early two thousands, correct? Yeah. Some of those credits are like, I did not put on IMDb. So some of them are like things I did in my mid teens, Oh um, wow! but I made, I'm, I'm 36 year old years old. Now my first feature I made when I was at the tender age of 18 years old. And it wasn't a porno, correct? It was not. Unfortunately, <laughs> it was not profitable in that, to that level. So <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it was actually, although, I mean, it's one of the one of the strongest titles I've ever put out. It was called Marty Jenkins and the Vampire Bitches. Oh, boy. So how <laughs> did one get in to filmmaking? Like, I went to film school in 2006, but I went into radio because, first off, I can't stand being on, on a film set. I've been on a film set with some pretentious people back in my day and like that is not my world how did you get involved in filmmaking and all that wonderful holly weird stuff well you know i'm in the midwest i'm in dayton ohio which is the paris of ohio and (laughs) uh but it's actually it's a small city it's not really a town it's a city and it has a very interesting outsider art space both music and a little bit of film and photography and things like that I was a very, when I was a very young kid, I did not have a lot of friends. I didn't have a lot of things other than the VCR. So movies were my friends growing up. And then when I was, when I was 12 years old, I aggressively pushed to become a volunteer at my community access channel because I was from humble beginnings. So 
my home, we didn't just have like camcorders. We didn't have new computers, things like that. It was, it was something we had to save for. In fact, the first camcorder I ever had, we put on layaway at Walmart. Yeah. That when that was a thing. So the community access stations out here, uh, the way they work is they're funded not directly by taxpayers, but they're funded through what are called franchise fees, which is um, basically a fee that cable companies pay to use city infrastructure. Not to get like super boring, but <laughs> so basically the, it's, the cable system is funding community access as a thank you for being able to use infrastructure that was built by the county and city and stuff like that. So you end up with this television station that has cameras you can rent for free. Um, You pay a yearly fee to be a member. And that's where I started to learn how to make television and movies. And then I had the greatest luck of all, which is I found a great mentor. And it was a guy named Andy Kopp. And Andy had made a feature shortly before I started volunteering at the cable access station. And he really encouraged me and gave me good criticism and became in many ways a father to me. And that was where it became, you know, I became hopelessly in love with making movies was from that point on. From that point on, I was always making something from 12 years old until I'm speaking to you today. I've always been making something. So when you started getting into making movies and learning from Andy, was there any particular genre that kind of drew you in as saying, I want to make this? I was a massive horror movie fan. And I think most people who get really into making movies are because horror movies have the most rabid fandom, you know, um, and I and I think that's great, but it's also like it also bums me out sometimes. Like I wish there were comedy conventions. I wish there were, you know, I wish there were more than just science fiction and horror conventions for the most part. Although I heard that in New Jersey last year they did a Hallmark Christmas movie convention. What and the I fuck was, is that? <laughs> I was so mad I wanted to go, but I couldn't. I didn't have the time to go. I so- just love that. So who would the guest list be? You'd get Kirk Cameron, Lacey Chalbert, and who else would show up to that? Oh my goodness. Well, first of all, your 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 uh, understanding of Hallmark Christmas movies is a little on the old side. Oh Kirk my Cameron God. and people like that, they're not involved anymore. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> but it was just people who had starred in them, some of the people who directed them. And it was mostly, though, and this is why I was thrilled to see it and why I wanted to go. It was mostly about people who love those movies, and there are lots of them, getting to all hang out together. Oh, wow. And share that they dig this, you know, that they that they like it. And I was like, yes, this is what we need, because I love the horror spaces I work in, but I love movie fandom. And most of the horror fans I know and meet at conventions are just general movie fans. It's just that they love horror and there's a space to be a fan. You know, there's a, the fandom is very vocal. So it's somewhere where you can participate and meet people who like things just like you like. So what was the first horror movie that you remember seeing? Oh boy. Um, I think it would be return of the living dead. Nice. Good pick. I was very, very young because I remember my mom when I was, I would say four or five, my mom used to go brains <laughs> and like chase me around the house. So I was very young seeing stuff like that. We had this show here um, called, well, it wasn't really a show so much as a time slot on USA Network called Saturday Nightmares. Yes. 
Yeah. And that was a a major influence because uh, my mother and my stepdad would stay up late and watch it. And I would be on the couch like between them. And I'm like four, five, whatever. And I would be like, it would be getting late. And my stepdad would not want to put me to bed because he wanted to watch the show. He was being lazy. You know, he'd had a couple of cervezas and he was, and he was, you know, he was feeling no pain and ready to watch, you know, what uh, an episode of the hitchhiker or whatever might be on. And I would lay there and my mom would be like, we should put him to bed. And he'd be like, yeah, he's already fallen asleep. Like, just let him sleep. And then I would not sleep. I would watch Saturday nightmares <laughs> covertly through like, my eyelids gently as they, as they thought I was asleep. So that was how I first saw return of the living dead. That was how I first saw uh Friday, the 13th sequels, uh, the not the exorcist, but poltergeist stuff like that. It was all on Saturday nightmares and I would watch it covertly <laughs> hiding in plain sight between my mother and my stepdad. Oh man. And that was such a unique era. Like, cause that's when you had TNT monster vision. Oh, you had yeah. like, I first started when I saw horror movies, I did see them on USA, but I remember when it switched over to USA up, up all night. Yes. And they'd have a host uh, kind of doing it there too. And that's something we never really had in Canada for like yeah. horror movies. The closest we had, you might have gotten this in Ohio over the air. It's possible. We had a public broadcaster called TVO, and we had an, this older gentleman named Ellie Yost, and his son is the guy that wrote Speed. Huh, and okay. the last episode they aired of Saturday Night at the Movies, they did Speed, which is funny because like he would do Lawrence of Arabia. You get the like Night of the Living Dead. Maybe you get like some of the Hammer horror movies. But in 94 whatever the year speed came out he's like my son wrote this and it is speed oh, so my son, his movie. son was graham yost yeah oh man he's written some of the best movies and tv series ever yeah so Broken like, arrow oh. hard rain justified sorry i'm nerd <laughs> oh yeah like it's just it's amazing just to think that you know the, how small the film world re really kind of can be and yeah i mean it's cool that you kind of grew up on that because like, as you go through your career, you start to develop what you want to do, what you want to express. So when you started doing horror movies, what did you find to be the most challenging, the most fun or most unexpected thing you didn't expect from a production standpoint? The irony is that the, these things never changed. The most challenging things were scheduling uh, and making sure people show up and show up on time. When I got older, you would also hope they show up sober. Um, <laughs> but, but that, those were always, it's funny. The challenges have changed very little schedule is always been the hardest part of making a movie. And the most, uh, fun part of filming a movie has always been when the sense of collaboration reaches kind of its climax for lack of a better term, when, you're like halfway through the day and an actor or, uh, or whoever, or an effects person or whoever you're working with just nails an idea that you both came up with on the fly. And then you're both like laughing and, and high-fiving because you just feel like, yeah, we got that. That's my favorite moment on a, on a movie set. And it was the same when I was a kid, when I was a kid, you know, if we were making some goofy, stupid slasher movie in my backyard and the blood spray looked awesome, we'd all be high-fiving and laughing. 
and saying like, let's order a pizza. And it felt great. So it's so funny how little it's truly changed. The worst parts are, you know, scheduling and dealing with personalities. The best parts are that sense of we just made a movie or we're making a movie and we're doing what we enjoy very, very much. So when you're creating this movie magic and everything, like you said, is just firing on all cylinders over your movies, what do you think is the most memorable special effect that you've had come together in a way you just didn't expect? Oh, I can tell you, although I can't say in a way I didn't expect because I, I'm very, for lack of a better term, I I mean, I'm pretty seasoned at this point. I've directed 17 features that are out and available to the, in the world. And I have a pretty good understanding of like cinema language. Mm -hmm. So my favorite story of an effect is when I was making a film called babysitter massacre, which is kind of like my most famous horror film. Um, when I was making that movie myself and the effects artist, we had a disagreement because I had said, uh, we were going to do a scene where this girl gets her Achilles tendons cut and the art, the makeup artist was like, how are we going to do that? Like, I don't know how exactly I can pull that off. And I was like, don't worry about it. I got this. And she was like, okay, but like, I don't know. How are we going to show him slight? How are we going to do it? And I was like, just make her ankles look cut. And I'll take care of the rest. And she was like, okay, but it's going to look weird. Like why, how, I don't understand what we're doing. And I was like, just make her ankles look like they've been cut. So she did that. And then I filmed the flat of the knife over her ankles. And just when I said action, the actor just pulled the knife across the ankles without touching anything. And then when I cut it together, it's all in one fluid motion. You see him, you see the ankles, you see him again, you see him pull the knife, you hear a slicing sound. And when we showed it at the premiere screening, everyone like cringed and went all at the same time. It worked perfectly. And the makeup artist came to me at the end. and was like, damn, that worked so well. And I was like, thank you. I was so happy that we were able to collaborate. (laughs) <laughs> that's always something i find amazing because like i one of the things that i, I love to do when, whenever i buy a blu-ray or a dvd or whatever i love watching special features and because i listen to podcasts now i like listening to special effects artists and directors talk about these moments where like don't worry it'll just work and yeah kind of hearing that it's it's neat to hear how people can Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Create that and they just know. Like, I wish I had the creative drive to be a filmmaker, especially in the horror genre, because I think you you could have 
so much fun, especially because you and I are both children of the 80s. You're a little younger than I am. I'm an 81 baby. And we really came up in the era of practical effects, beautiful practical effects. And what is your opinion on, shall we say, computer-enhanced or practical? What's your favorite? What's your least favorite? Who's your favorite artist? Well, that's that's a tricky question because I've never been obsessive about special effects, personally. Um, I try to, we work on low budgets, so I try to keep the need for effects as minimalist as possible because I have a belief that you accentuate the positives and hide the negatives. So if you don't have a lot of money for makeup, do the least amount of makeup possible in the story. You know, because because what really comes down to is, does the story feed that you have a low budget? Because if it does, then no one will even notice the budget is low because nothing is missing. So for me, I do agree. We grew up in the realm of practical effects, but I think that the real element is that because we grew up watching practical effects, we expect action and violence and and things like that to look a certain way because they had to film it a certain way in order to hide the seams mm-hmm. like a, a good example of a of a of an effect that just did not work for me or anytime someone got shot in the movie the devil's rejects okay and it's not because the effects looked terrible although at the end the slow motion shooting that actually looked pretty rough but there's a part where like a guy, a girl is running and she gets shot in the leg and it's all just in the wide shot. Her leg bursts open. It's, it's very clearly CG. Um, and you know, it's her bare leg. And all I could think was, you know, if you had put her in pants or had the gunshot hit somewhere where she was clothed and you hadn't shown it all in one wide shot, you'd cut to a medium for when the shot happened and then cut back to another shot or cut back to a wide or whatever so that it was more inserted. You could have still used CGI and you would have fooled more people because then people would have been like, oh, well, that's how I'm used to seeing gunshots is it's not all in one fluid motion because you could, you literally couldn't do it when it was done practically. So I think that if you use the language of the movie, people respond better to that. So I think that's a lot more to do with it for me personally. I'll watch a movie. And when I see a, uh, a special effect that I know there's no way it could have been done other than a computer. I'm like, Oh, okay. That was a computer effect. But if you shot it, like it was practical, I think more people would be forgiving. Cause from my perspective, when people judge, like say like a sci-fi original monster movie and they're like, mm-hmm. the monster looks so fake. Cause they use CGI. I'm like, hold, uh, hold your horses, pal. The monsters always look fake. (laughs) They've never looked real. They just don't look fake in the way you grew up with. So you're bothered. (laughs) So I've never been much of a, of a elitist about like practical effects versus not. I remember when I did a film called haunted house on sorority row after the film was done and delivered, I was looking through it and I was like, Oh wait, we didn't do any CGI effects. So we added that. To, we added that to the promotion. That's it wasn't amazing. on purpose, but we made it seem like this is a, a, a marketing point and, you know, featuring only practical effects. But we didn't set out to do that. It's just we ended up not needing any CGI touch up. So. <laughs> so 
yeah, yeah. So I, I'm not a big, you know, a big worrier of that. Obviously, I think that the best CGI people in the world are the folks at KNB, and I don't think, or not CGI, uh, uh, practical effects people are KNB, and I don't think, you know, that's a special opinion. I think a lot of people would agree. I think mm-hmm. that their work on The Walking Dead and, yeah. and things like that really proves how far you can push practical effects with the help of computers. So. I think that would be like, to me, bar none, you know, the most wowing. But of course, my heart lies with Tom Savini's work in Dawn of the Dead, because yes. Dawn of the Dead is like my favorite movie of all time. You know what's weird? I've, I've actually got a really weird story about Dawn of the Dead. When I was growing up, and this is in elementary school, so I'm in grade six to eight, and I went to the same elementary school, which is evidently a weird thing i hear uh like i I went from grades one to eight in the same school anyway i grew up in hicksville ontario well in in our smaller towns it's like that too in america if if a town's small enough then sometimes the school will be one building for everybody okay cool so i found a book and i wish i could remember what it was but it had stills of tom savini's work in dawn of the dead and the picture that I remember the clearest of day is where is where he is the character of Blade and he's got the machete and he sticks it in the one zombie's head and mm-hmm. you can see the guy's eyes moving back and forth. Yeah. Clear as day. I remember that. And it wasn't until I went to high school in 95 or 96 that I came across a double VHS of uh-huh. Dawn of the Dead. Yeah. And I was like, oh my God, I never knew you could do this because at the time my experience with special effects was like Friday the 13th Nightmare on Elm Street, which are fantastic in their own ways. Sure. But there was something different about Tom Savini and Greg Nicotaro at at, at at that time and tom is like just he's the master I, i'd like to I, I would be very curious to know who will succeed him in like 20 years who will be the next tom savini so to speak yeah and, um, and, and it's interesting because thanks to things like face off and stuff makeup artists have definitely become a little bit more um of personalities than mm-hmm. they used to be yeah, because, like, I remember seeing special features on people like Tom, Greg Nicotaro, Rob Botine, Phil Tippett, Stan Winston, God rest his soul, and stuff like that. Like, you learn so many of these cool people that have just done so much with their hands and practicality, and now with the enhanced artists at KMB, ILM. Like, special effects have taken movies to a whole different level that I never foresaw 30 something years ago. Oh, and, and I mean, honestly, when it comes to technology, marrying with art, uh, technology is really hard to estimate how it's going to improve uh, unless you're in that field, (laughs) like, unless that's where you work, because, you know, imagine in 2003, could you have predicted the iPhone? only because of star trek but probably not to this level yeah exactly weird yeah so so then when it comes to cgi and i know a lot of people hate on cgi a lot but there are artists behind it it's not just coders and it's not just techno you know geeks it's there are artists behind it too who have to know how to draw and shade and try their best to make it look great um and I mean, the cruelest thing you can do to CGI artists is just rush them 
And unfortunately, they're getting rushed a lot. I know at this point, even Disney is like, come on, hurry up. <laughs> like, come on, we got to get this Marvel show out. And I'm like, really? The people with more money than God need to <laughs> need to rush it out? Okay. I mean, you know, I, when I make a feature, sometimes we only have six days to shoot it. So you better believe that that's the reason I don't have time to explain to a makeup artist why I'm going to do it the way I'm doing it. It's like, Mm -hmm. it's like, I would love to sit here for 20 minutes and explain to you why I'm doing it this way, but instead (laughs) we're just going to do it and then you'll see it. (laughs) So So one of the other things that obviously why we're here to talk about, and we kind of hinted at, at the beginning of this conversation, because this conversation is going to go everywhere over the next hour or so. Let's talk about Freddy's nightmares. Oh, let's. So this is a show, like you said, was very hard to get a hold of for the longest time. Now is available streaming for free if you happen to live in the United States on Tubi. If you happen to live in Australia and Europe, you can get this on a Blu-ray set. You can get a, quote, less than legal region-free version on eBay. You will be paying out the proverbial nose for it. Yes. But it's one of those interesting pieces of Freddy fandom that not a lot of people know about or if they know about they only know in passing trivia because the first episode was included on that blu-ray set from a million years ago yeah no and and that's that's what attracted myself and my co-host david to doing this is we have both been like man freddy's nightmares is that bastion of 80s uh, of the eighties time period of horror that neither of us and most fans just don't have a full knowledge of, which is crazy that there's that there were four. And now we've watched, we've gone through almost half of the series, but it was crazy to go, Hey, there are 44 episodes of Freddy Krueger things that we just don't know. That's insane. Yeah. Considering like, I, yeah, we watched the movies like 50 times each. Yeah. And considering Freddy was this cultural phenomenon in the late 80s going into the 90s. I mean, even when like I was growing up, it was a thing. Oh, yeah. Like there was Freddy Krueger Day in Los Angeles. There was the game for the Nintendo Entertainment System. There was a game on the Commodore 64. Like Freddy was literally everywhere for a while. There was even a talking Freddy doll that was pulled from the market at like one point. There's a guy on YouTube and Facebook. His name's Dinosaur Dracula. There was like Freddy Krueger fucking gum that I had no idea existed. Freddy Krueger trading cards with the gum included. Yep. Yeah. And yet people forget there was a television series, yet people remember Friday the 13th, the series, but they seem to forget there was no Jason in that show at all. Yeah. Well, in Friday the 13th, the series, yeah, for some reason, it just always had a presence compared to Freddy's nightmares. And, And some of that may have had to do with the fact that by the time dvd was really catching on for television series and stuff like that um new line cinema had then been sold had been part of the merger with aol time warner that may have had something to do with it because that was a mess um the aol time warner merger is such a mess that in order to understand what a mess it was i had to read a whole ass book oh my god (laughs) no and i and i i I have to remember the name of the book i think it was like there's there's got to be a donkey in here somewhere or something it was a weird name (laughs) but it it, it, because that was literally one of the greatest disasters in corporate history of the world like uh one of the greatest disasters that didn't involve out and out crime (laughs) so uh because aol was assumed to be worth billions more than time warner even though they had like no assets 
and no reason to be valuable. <laughs> it was just because people were like, AOL's amazing. Let's make it worth a lot. Anyway, I digress on that. But so I think that may have had something to do with it. Um, I also think we forget that there was a time when television was generally very disposable, extremely disposable television. It's kind of like when TV was first born, it was like radio. They would just do it live and it went out into the air and it went out into the ether and that was it. It was gone forever. Um, some of the earliest TV shows, they just don't exist at all because no one either wanted to record them or even was capable of recording them. Um, you had, are you familiar with Kinescope? I've heard of it because I think I learned about, I think I learned about it in one of my television classes, but oh, definitely refresh my memory. Oh, well, I mean, Kinescope was literally pointing a film camera at a monitor while they were doing a live show and recording it that way. So some of our earliest TV, it looks kind of funny because it was a kinescope. It was basically just a film recording of a standard definition television monitor. So it looks a little funny, but at least it's preserved. But you know who was a forward thinker in the world of television? Lucille Ball. Oh, yeah. Because she insisted that every episode of I Love Lucy be shot on film so that it would exist forever. And now I bet you're thinking back and you're like, so that's why Nick at Night showed I Love Lucy all the time, because they had every episode. Yeah, because that would make sense, because like you would have Lucy, you would have Lassie, yes. Leave it to Beaver, My Two Sons, and all that Nick at Night stuff. Yeah, that would have, yeah, good, wow, good call. Yeah, so, so and, that's, and that's the thing. So you have these shows like Leave it to Beaver or, or, or uh, Lassie that aren't really studio shows. They, so they had to be made like little films. They literally had to be. And that's why you 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 were able to watch those. But I Love Lucy was one of the few golden era of sitcoms that was captured on film like that. So that's a one of the reasons I Love Lucy is very special. And Lucille Ball was just she believed she was like, no, I want this show to exist forever. But people really felt like entertainment was very, uh, very temporary and very disposable back then for the most part. And not just um, TV. I mean, you know, you look, you hear back to like when Roger Corman was pumping out movies, they didn't save prints of anything. Like once it had ran and made some money, that was the end of it. They were like, oh, "Oh, there's, this has no value anymore. They didn't know that, that we were going to become such an archival society. And which we are like deeply archival now, but back then it, it was forward thinking to think like, you know, I don't want this to go away. Um, I think, and I think that came from the way radio was done and it came from plays because a play went away, you know, you would sit down in the theater and watch it. And when it was over, it was gone. It was just in your eyes and in your head. So there, there was a big change once VHS hit. And then once, especially when DVD hit, that it was like, no, 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 we want all of this. And also we love nostalgia. <laughs> so it, it, because it, uh, I mean, that's, you know, a lot of businesses were built on the idea of nostalgia, which was also somewhat new uh, at the time in like the seventies and eighties. So what do you think was the conversation in the room between New Line Cinema, Bob Shea, and I think it was MGM, you said, on your podcast to put together Freddy's nightmares. Cause you've got these 
violent for the time, tame by today's standards, horror television show with a child killer slash molester <laughs> as your host who occasionally pops out of car trunks going, hi! <laughs> and, <laughs> and it just, it gets so ridiculous. How do you decide to sell that to a major network and then there was controversy that followed with that because people would air it during the after school time because kids. Yeah. So, so Freddy's nightmares came about because Lorimar television approached new line cinema and basically said, Hey, let's do a series together. And usually the way those deals work. And this is me now speaking as a, as a knowledgeable person in the field, because this information is not exactly available, but I would assume that they probably said, Hey, let's go halvesies on this show. Cause that's usually how it goes. So a tell so Lorimar would come to new line and basically say like, let's finance a show based on your most popular intellectual property. Freddy Krueger will pay for half. You'll pay for the other half. You'll own the copyright. We'll own the TV rights for however many years, who knows how long. And then basically new line would make additional money by selling it internationally. And, and that was kind of the, the, the basics. So from there, I mean, I cannot pretend that Freddy's nightmares was not a thousand percent a cash in. It absolutely was. But when a, when you do a cash in TV series where you're literally like, we want any script and any director, you're going to end up with a lot of creativity on screen. It's just going to be cheap and campy. <laughs> but you're going to end up with a lot of creativity. And that's what makes Freddy's nightmare. So fascinating is you can really tell there was like no cop on the beat. Like there was nobody from new line going, I don't know about this script. They were like, they were more like, this is going to air on time, right? We have advertising to sell. <laughs> like we want to make money. In fact, one of the oddest parts of Freddy's nightmares. And I, I cannot claim to be an expert on syndicated television, but I've never heard of another TV show doing this. Freddy's Nightmares was a one hour scripted show that they also aired as a 22 minute scripted show. So literally they filmed every episode so that they could just slice off the second half and just have the first half be its own episode so that they could fit time slots in every market they could get literally get as much money as you can. Wow. And yeah, I've never heard of any show before or since ever kind of doing that. So one of the things about Freddy's Nightmares that has always intrigued me and part of the reason why I started listening to your podcast is I wanted to know what did Freddy's Nightmares do to the lore of the show? What became canonical? What became apocryphal? And what just was added into the world of Springwood? Because as I talked about the intro of the show, for some reason, Springwood has an international airport, an NHL hockey rink, a medical school. Springwood is a very upwardly mobile town, despite, you know, thousands of child murders happening on a relatively yeah. regular basis. Despite the constant of, uh, of people dying in their dreams. <laughs> no, and that's that's the thing is they had to just keep building because they have to uh, they're 44 episodes there were two seasons 22 episodes a season and each of those episodes is technically two episodes which gets even more confusing as the show goes on by the way uh, but so i that's one of the things i'm really enjoying about doing the show is that we are piling up this freddy lore Obviously, we like to play with the idea that the show is canon. The show is clearly not canon. The people who are making the movies did not care 
one crap about about the TV series. So, but it is fun to kind of play in that. So for the most part, I think the series is just kind of canonical to itself because even mm-hmm. Freddy's origin in the TV series is slightly different than the movies, just slightly like he's instead of uh, nobody signing the search warrant, they made it that he wasn't read his Miranda rights, you know, the little things like that or why he, he walks free and the parents have to kill him. So they definitely fill in a lot of blanks. And they're smart, though, because instead of filling in every episode with just Freddy lore, they lean into building up Springwood. And in the movies, you get almost nothing about Springwood. So that's smart. Um, I will say watching Freddy's Nightmares, I do feel like the people when they were making Freddy's Dead, I think they were watching. Um, I think they were watching at least a little bit because I feel like they borrowed some of the better things Mm -hmm. from what they what they did on Freddy's Nightmares and put that into Freddy's Dead. But that's just my personal opinion based on on just having watched almost half of Freddy's Nightmares very scrupulously. Now, speaking of watching Freddy's Nightmares, I would love for you to elaborate this on for my listeners of This Week in Geek. You said on your podcast you found VHS tapes of this and you found them in a very strange place. Yes. I. So the first episode of Freddy's Nightmares I ever saw was actually on the shelves of a Value City department store, which Value City department store is what it sounds like. It was a discount overstock department store. So you could buy things you would buy at Sears, but they would be cheaper and they'd be overstock. And there was literally, this would have been in the early 2000s, there were literally old new stock of just like sealed tapes of Freddy's Nightmares episodes. I, there, I believe there were four in total, but I bought two of them. I bought do uh, I bought um, uh, dreams that kill and and do dreams bleed. Those were the two episodes I got, and I was so excited because I had only ever heard of Freddy's Nightmares from an advertisement on the VHS tapes of Nightmare on Elm Street movies. They would advertise like you know check your local listings, which means good luck, <laughs> good luck finding <laughs> it. Um, so. I remembered seeing those, but I also remember watching those and being somewhat underwhelmed and also incredibly confused by the fact that the story was like completely different in the second half, but also very surprised by how even at like 16, how sleazy they were for being on television. Um, And that was the other thing is in the movies, they kind of they kind of skirt around the idea that Freddie was murdering little tiny children. They kind of don't say it, but they hint at it, but they don't like out and out say it. And they don't say it, but they hint at it that he was a child molester in the TV series, which was for broadcast television. They're just like, yeah, he was a child murderer, child molester. Like they just, it's, it's like, Oh, the FCC, who cares? But when, when it's in the movie theater, let's be tasteful. Like it just blew my mind. It totally blew my mind. And Freddy's Nightmares, and this is something people forget very easily, was it was successful. It did well on TV and it did okay overseas for New Line. But what ended it was, like you said, the television stations got greedy and started airing the show earlier and earlier so that they could make better ad revenue because uh, daytime, daytime TV pays low, nighttime TV pays low, but afternoon and evening TV pays really well. So they were like, wow, Freddy's Nightmares is doing so well at 11 p.m., which was when they assumed the show would air was 11 p.m. almost everywhere. So let's put it at 10. 
And then they'd be like, whoa, it's doing really well at 10. Let's put it at nine. And then they'd be like, whoa, it's doing really well at nine. Let's put it at eight. And by that point, parents were like, what is this on at eight o'clock at night? <laughs> like, why does this episode, why is there a child murderer, child molester <laughs> slaughtering people and then women in lingerie everywhere at eight o'clock? So the parents group started complain, complaining. And this was during a time, especially in the United States, of what's called the satanic panic. It was the end of that era. And the satanic panic was basically this concept that Dungeons and Dragons and heavy metal music and all these things were tied to some secret cabal of Satanists. And a lot of those bands played into it. <laughs> they would say Hail Satan <laughs> on their records and stuff to troll them. But that kind of caught went into this hysteria, this belief that there were all these Satanists who were just doing terrible things. When in, when, when in reality, it was greedy Hollywood execs and to a lesser extent, Bob Shay. Uh, I mean, yeah, it was really. Yeah, exactly. And of everything that they were afraid of, Freddie was the least satanic of their worries. I mean, let's be real. Like you calling Freddie satanic is a bit of a stretch considering he's just a friggin burned and charred goober. You know, like in the show, he's just he's literally, you know, saying like puns and then biting into a doll or, you know, or eating the pretending to eat flowers. He it, it was it's a very weird show. And that's the thing, though. A lot of people who get upset about how offensive something is don't even watch it. Um, Like, I'm a big iced tea fan. I don't know if, if you're a big iced tea oh, yeah. fan, but I love iced tea. You know, we had a song called I'm Your Pusher. Oh, and it was a it was a song to the uh, kind of to the beat of um, Pusher Man, you know, that old mm -hmm. I'm your mama, I'm your daddy, you know, that, that song. But his song was about not doing drugs and instead listening to records. It was an anti-drug song and people were protesting it being pro-drug because they didn't listen to it. Oh, my God. That's that's the way people who clutch their pearls are and have always been. They 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 hear the, something, they hear like a title or they hear one other person be mad and then they just decide to also be mad. And that's how you get hysteria, that's how you get a lot of things. And that's why these days when I hear of something that sounds like it would bother me or offend me, I have to immediately question it and look into it and be like, "Okay, but did this actually even happen?" Mm -hmm. I just need to know. <laughs> so, but that's the way it's, it, you know, it's not new. People feel like we're in the new era of like fake news or whatever you want to call it, but we're not. It's always been there. It's just now it's not your blue haired aunt, you know, saying about talking about it at Thanksgiving table to spread it. It's just spread on social media. So, yeah, sorry. <laughs> so as the show, like I said, you said it was super successful for two seasons, 44 episodes limited release on vhs but a lot of young stars and directors and people of note got their start and one of the latest episodes you just talked about featured one of the hottest leading men for a number of years and still is arguably a very um bankable star now brad pitt who oh, else yeah. was on freddy's nightmares yeah brad pitt one of his first big gigs he did cutting class which was a b-movie and then did Freddy's Nightmares in the same year. And Freddy's Nightmares was probably his biggest exposure up until that point. And that's kind of mind-blowing. But it makes sense, you know, uh, syndicated television and especially um, 
anthology style television because Freddy's Nightmares is an anthology. Every week there's a different story and they may tie together very vaguely. Anthology television offers great uh, opportunity because there are so many roles to fill. Um, even the X-Files is kind of an anthology show because it was a monster of the week type deal. So every week you needed at least some new characters and you burn through actors so fast. It really opens up a lot of doors. Uh, I did a TV series as producer director called Boggy Creek, the series. It was a Bigfoot television show mm -hmm. and our order was only six episodes but it was a monster of the week style show where, you know, the Bigfoot encounters something new every week. And we burned through actors so fast on just six episodes, just six episodes of that show. And it wasn't even an anthology. It was like an X-File show. You had two main characters and then some other side people. But we were like, we, we had, I think like we had to have like four or five new actors every episode. And by the end of it, I was like, Oh my God, I'm run I've got to like, call friends of friends and be like, do you know any actors that I haven't worked with before? Cause I would like burn through everybody I knew. So I can't imagine, you know, if you do it for 22 episodes, a lot of people are going to get opportunities a lot. Now on a show like that, who were some of the people that maybe wrote and direct episodes that went on to bigger and different things? I, the biggest example I would say is probably Mick Garris. Because Mick Garris directed an episode of that and then went on to become kind of a golden child for Steven Spielberg for a while. Um, because he went from Freddy's Nightmares to working on Amazing Stories. He wrote a bunch of episodes and then directed a, an episode or two um, of Amazing Stories and then became Mick Garris, the, you know, the guy behind Masters of Horror, the guy behind Critters uh, 2, the guy behind Sleepwalkers, uh, and the guy behind a ton of Stephen King adaptations and things like that. So he's probably one of the biggest examples. The other big one would be Gilbert Adler, who was the producer on every episode of Freddy's Nightmares. He had come off of the Hitchhiker TV series, which was an anthology series, went on to do Freddy's Nightmares. And then when Freddy's Nightmares ended, he was brought in to basically turn around the insanely out of control budget on Tales from the Crypt. So he became one of the main creative forces on Tales from the Crypt from season three onward. Now, speaking of, of Gil Adler, you had an interview a couple of weeks back with one of the people from Tales from the Crypt, not Gil himself, but Alan Katz. Yes. Tell me a little bit. How did that come about? Well, one of the things that made me go, me and my buddy Dave go, man, we need to sit down and watch Freddy's Nightmares was listening to uh, Al Katz's podcast, How Not to Make a Movie where they talk, he talked at length with a lot of people in show business about the nightmare of making Bordello of Blood, one of the Tales from the Crypt series, uh, or movies. And he talked a lot about working on Tales from the Crypt and how he was Gil's writing partner. So they basically worked on every episode together. And that was kind of what made me, he mentioned, because he worked on a couple episodes of Freddy's Nightmares as well, because Gil and he were friends. That made me go, man, I need to watch Freddy's Nightmares. And then when Dave said, dude, let's like watch an episode every week together. And then I was like, dude, let's do a podcast. Because I already was doing podcasts. I have all the gear. I have all the equipment. I have all the microphones and everything you need. So that was the, the impetus. Really all started with Al Cat's podcast. So I told David, because I'm a full-time filmmaker. That's how I make the majority of my living. Podcasting is a side hustle. Uh, my podcast weekly spooky is actually the podcast that like brings in some money and has a lot of listeners. 
So that's, you know, more where I put my focus. So I told Dave when we started the show, I was like, you got to do the legwork on booking guests and stuff like that, because I just don't have I can I can dedicate the time to writing my part of the episode and recording it and publishing it. But that's all I got. That's all I have in me. So Dave reached out to Al Katz on Facebook and Al was very, very supportive. But I also want to mention this show has reached people more than you'd expect. Um, I don't want to say his name yet, but after our first episode published, we we got an email from a guy who wrote two episodes of Freddy's Nightmares, oh, and that wow. was how his career started. And from then, he's written a few features, but he's been like an incredibly prolific television writer. That's and awesome. He, he he wrote us this really sweet message about how like he had fond memories come back to him listening to us laugh about the show, and apparently. He listens to every episode now because we mentioned him in passing and he wrote an email about how he heard us mention him. So we're going to bring him on in a couple weeks. Oh, that's fantastic. Speaking of emails, that's how you and I have become friends. Yes. Yes. You wrote in an email, which was very appreciated at the time. You, you, You know, because you've been podcasting even longer than I have. You know how great it feels to get some feedback and how you can have a lot of downloads. And very little feedback. That's a very common thing. Yeah. Like, so how I, like I said, I I found you on Reddit and I was listening. And at the time, my cat, Dr. Wiley, was getting sick. But we would always spend Tuesday evenings. I would play Call of Duty or Dragon Ball. And I just would mute the TV. And I'd listen to you via my Google Home. And it was just a quiet bonding experience. And I think the episode I wrote you on was either episode two or three. It was the one with Lori Petty or it was the Beefy Boy episode. I can't remember which. And then you read it a couple episodes later. Yeah, the Beefy Boy was episode two and Lori Petty was episode three. So, yeah, it was two or three. Yeah. And then um, as listeners of Twig know, Wiley passed away at the end of November on November 26. And I was listening to one of your episodes and I was just, you know what? I know how much this is going to mean. So I wrote you just before Christmas and then you and Dave read it on the Christmas episode because as you said, it sometimes when you're a podcaster, sometimes you don't always get a lot of feedback. Some some of these podcasts that are wildly successful, sometimes they get fan mail, and I've gotten fan mail too. They get stuff in the mail, whatever. But not every podcast that's super successful gets that. Yeah. So I really wanted you guys to have something special and something genuine from the heart. Because as, like you said, I've, I've, I've been podcasting since 2007. I can't believe I've been going this long. And I really want you guys to keep going and you're uh, you're coming up to episode 16 either this week or next week that means the show is in theory half over yeah i don't want this ride to end (laughs) well we're gonna try to space it out spoiler alert we're gonna try and space it out by uh getting as many interviews as we can to do episode we want the podcast to not just be every episode of freddy's nightmares but also like a compendium of information about freddy's nightmares and about and about the um kind of oh, what's the word the kind of ancillary media yeah the ancillary media and and more so like the stuff that's really on the far outskirts you know on the margins the margins of freddy fandom so like book novelizations uh stories that are just in books comic book uh, adaptations uh, things like that uh the freddy's greatest hits album uh the freddy 1900 number so we're, we intend to do episodes dedicated to those things so you know, hopefully it'll add about 10, 15 episodes 
to the run. So it'll go a little bit longer. Um, we're going to be this year being very aggressive about getting interviews. We wanted to wait to start bugging people for interviews until we had over 10 episodes. That way we could establish to uh, the people we're asking that this is a thing we're dedicated to. And so they well, can really hear what we're all about. Yeah, because I I remember during one of your episodes, you had stated most people tend to pod fade after about episode six or seven. Yeah. Yeah, that's and, the statistic I read. Yeah. And it's just one of those things when you're kind of dedicated to things like I've I like I know people in the podcasting fandom that have done have reviewed every single episode of like, say, Transformers or He-Man or whatever. But I just once again, by listening to the Al Katz podcast, how not to make a movie. There's a Tales from the Crypt podcast, and they get people on there all the time. So if you're willing to put in the work, you can really expand what this podcast can cover. And that is something you and I have been kind of talking about. And I'm just going to drop this bomb on my listeners <laughs> right now. So fucking surprise. Me and Heinrich, we're talking about doing a collaboration during the summer. Yeah. And I would love to do... A DVD commentary, which is something Twig had done for years in the past. Me and Alex do it around Christmas time. We'll watch a short little Christmas special. We'll make fun of it. But when Twig first started out back in 2007, we used to do commentaries for big movies. And we didn't always know everything, but it would be us hanging. It basically be like a really shitty version of Rift Tracks. Um, so <laughs> I think you and I, and if you can convince Dave that, person who happens to probably be at a day job right now uh, to drive his ass up here to guelph ontario we should do some commentaries because i think we could have a lot of fun as we're both big horror fans we love freddie and as you heard during the intro you heard robert england i actually i should tell you the story of, about how i got that promo i would love to hear it Okay, so it's 2009, maybe two, 2010. Anchor Bay Films has invited me out to this premiere uh, in Toronto at the Bloor Street Cinema. And I think the movie was called Something Jack Monster Slayer or something. And Robert's one of the uh, side characters, but obviously he's in all the marketing. So we go to this bar across the street. And because I'm media, I get one drink ticket. Now, if you've seen pictures of me, Heinrich, you know I'm a pretty big man. So I go in there and I go, hey, Robert, it's Mike. How are you? And it's like, hey, how are you? And he starts giving me a big, hearty handshake. He gives me a hug and everything. And he's surrounded by these beautiful girls. And he starts just hanging out and talking. And the bar is just it's fucking Freddy Krueger. He's going to drink all night and all his friends are <laughs> going to drink too. And he's like, Hey, you big man, you're drinking. And I'm like, okay. Um, and <laughs> I start getting very, very, very drunk. And there's a picture on my Facebook. I'll have to send it to you where Freddie is choking me. And I'm surrounded by these girls <laughs> on either side. And I'm very confused. Cause my, my photographer, my friend Dave is taking the picture and I'm like, I don't know what's going on. But I remember calling my friend Ashley Kivel on the phone, uh, very drunk at like three o'clock in the morning as I'm trying to get home from Toronto. And my, my girlfriend at the time, now wife, it says, Mike, there are two things I won't do for you. One of them is bail you out of jail and don't call me drunk. 
one of these things didn't happen. So I called her drunk and I called Kivel and I called her mom some very unpleasant names. And I was ranting about Freddie and she's like, Michael, this isn't Ashley. Oh shit. And I hung up the phone. And then I called my wife Blair. She's like, Michael, are you okay? No, I don't know where I am. So my friend Dave and Pierce get me home. We drive down the QEW to Niagara, which is where we were living at the time. And I remember passing out in my bed and getting the photos the following day. So yeah, that was a, it's the story of how I met Robert England. Um, so that, that was a fun wild. time. Yeah, that's crazy. No, that'd be, that'd be so epic. I've, I've only met Robert England in passing once. Cause I, I used to do convention tours. So I would mm-hmm. be, I would do like 14 conventions a year. So, you know, you, you kind of meet him in passing, but, uh, the coolest thing I ever got to see was I got to see him introduce, uh, in 2002 or 2001, I got to see him introduce, um, a 35 millimeter screening of new nightmare in oh. Chicago, but we didn't know that they were actually going to show clips from Freddy versus Jason, oh. which had never been seen before. So I swear, I thought the place was going to break out in a riot when he said like, uh, before we show the film, though, you want to see some clips from Freddy versus Jason? And like, it was like, I thought the building was just going to collapse in on itself. I thought they were going to start ripping the chairs off their bolts and start throwing them. They were so excited. And I was too. I mean, it was amazing. That was a movie that I think that's the movie you and I should do. Freddy versus Jason. I would Jason. love to. Sincerely. Like, like that is the movie I first saw Freddy Krueger in in theaters during its its initial run. And that night in August 2003 was unlike anything I've ever experienced. Like cuz I I like I was living in a new city, I got a new job, I got no friends to really hang out with. But I go to the movie theater and I'm surrounded by about 500 complete best friends and it's a and it's a feeling and and an experience that only think now people understand due to the marvel movies and it's something so magical and just the fact that we could share that experience i think that would be really fun so as we as we begin to wrap this up what's coming up on the show will you contact robert and will we ever get an appearance from freddie on this podcast i I, i'm i'm just gonna put you on the spot right now uh well so first of all robert england is obviously the holy grail of the show so dave is working on it and i have no idea how reasonable it is to hope he'll come on so we're trying and we're reaching out to lots of other people um i'm i'm fortunate that i do have some show business connections so some of the people i've been able to just reach out to because i already have their phone numbers oh Um, so we'll see what happens there i don't want to tease any of them because i you know if if somebody i'm friendly with can't do it i don't want the people who hear this to then go oh he was never on there must be a jerk (laughs) they might just (laughs) be busy yeah so but yeah so we're working on that as far as freddie appearing here um i'm not exactly prepared for that (laughs) That's okay. He always seems to go through the door. He can't figure out how to operate. He crashes through the door. He cut Dave's head with a pizza cutter. Yeah. Well, I mean, and then he did bad things too. Oh yeah. (laughs) 
I will say this. One of my favorite gags you've ever did, and I don't know why it's so funny. You did a gag with Dave, and it's just the way Freddie says this. Like, he does like, ah, ha, 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 ha. But he's like, Freddie, away. And it was just the <laughs> intonation in your voice killed me. I was in public, and I died laughing. I'm really glad people are enjoying that. The, the Freddie uh, appearing on the program is actually something based. The show is really just what Dave and I do when we watch movies, but we switched it to, you know, recapping episodes of Freddy's nightmares. So I've actually been riffing in Freddy's voice for a decade. Like just <laughs> like, we'll be watching something and in like all of a sudden I'll, you know, just be like, yeah, sounds great. Oh, <laughs> you're an idiot. You know, like I'll be, I'll be Freddy. And so when we, when I started doing Freddy on the show, actually Dave did not know that I was going to be Freddy on the show. I actually, to the point where he didn't know that I could press a button on the sound mixer and deepen my voice. So all of a sudden I was like, oh no, Freddy's here. And Dave was like, ha ha ha. And then all of a sudden he just hears in his headphones this deep, hey bitch. And, <laughs> and he lost it. Listen to that first episode again. The first time Freddy speaks, David's reaction is completely legitimate. Also, any jokes Freddy tells, David is not in on at all. He never knows what Freddie is going to say. And often I don't either because sometimes I'm riffing really hard. This week's episode that we just released, um, I really went nuts. I must, I was like in a really goofy mood. So Freddie was just, a, a, for lack of a better term, a total wackadoo <laughs> um, to use a scientific term. So we, that's the other thing about the show is we've just been having a lot of fun and that's been the best that's been the best feedback we've gotten from like you and from a few other people is just that it's fun to sit down and listen to us chat about Freddy's nightmares and also just our general fandom and things like that. Yeah. Like it's, it's something really special just hearing the chemistry between you and Dave. Now, one thing I want to talk about just before we begin to end the show mm -hmm. is you sent me an email just, just after Christmas and you and I have been talking for probably about a month or so by th this point. And you sent me an email that was honestly one of the most touching emails I've gotten in the last couple of months. And you said, I am helping you rediscover your heritage, your, your background. And why don't you tell me a little bit about what you wrote? Well, basically you had told me in, in first of all, uh, in the perfect way, I had the first time I read your email, I had credited uh, the email to your older name, for lack of a better term. Mm -hmm. um, and instead of being offended or bothered, you just politely told me I'm actually going by this and gave me like a little, you know, uh, and I apologize. I'm not going to try and say your name uh, because I don't want to be wrong, but it's uh, like SQA. SQA. Uh, actually, you're actually pronouncing it very close to the way it's pronounced in in Ojibwe and the, and how and what that means in old Ojibwe, which is how you're very close to pronouncing it, means the one who is last standing. But oh. the way I pronounce it is um, Ashkui. So Ashkui. Okay. So when I introduce myself, when I do public speaking events, for example, I say, Oh, Daisy Bing in Estacas Makwadotum. And I, what, what I just said to you in Ojibwe was my name is heart of the river. I am clan bear. 
So that's, and when I said, uh, and when, and when you tried to say thank you in Ojibwe, you didn't quite get it, but you were close. It's pronounced miigwech. And that means thank you. Which, and, and this is where it also gets tricky too, because I was just in Michigan and I mean, Ohio, where I live is, is a, a native American name. It mm-hmm. means on the river. And, Which is uh, funny because look at me. <laughs> yeah. Well, then Michigan means on the lake. <laughs> so, um, and I was just in Michigan. So every, every town name for the most part is some, is like uh, Algonquin or Chippewa names. And I kept pronouncing them wrong because my background, I say them in Spanish. <laughs> <laughs> like my first instinct when I see a word that's not doesn't look quite Englishy is to say it in Spanish. So that that you know gets tricky, and that kind of leads to my point. So you're you're little because, like I said, you were very polite and very friendly about it. It wasn't like, hey, you said my name wrong. I was like, hey, just want to let you know, I'm actually going by this name now because I'm reclaiming my native name, and you know, and here's how you pronounce it. You know, you were very, very awesome about it because instead of making me feel chastised or anything like that, you made me feel like a part of it. You see what I'm saying? Like, yeah. you made me feel like, oh, now I know the story and I want to help because <laughs> it was awesome. And then when I was actually going up to Michigan for my for my retreat for work, I started thinking about something I've thought about a lot, which is my name is uh, is. Enrique Couto, or I mean, I could, if you want to say it in the original Portuguese, it'd be Enrique Couto, but no, we're not in Portugal. We're not even close, <laughs> but my, so that's part of my heritage. But the other part is that my stepfather was from Mexico. So I have a very odd Hispanic upbringing. <laughs> and because I grew up in Ohio, we always called me Henrik or Henrique or, or what have you. And that was fine because that meant that people could read my name and generally pronounce it. But as time has gone on, I've really realized I would rather be Enrique, you know, personally. And I felt like, oh, but I'm too, you know, I'm too old to like change my pronunciation and da 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 da. And your email kind of made me go, you know what? No, I'm going to do it. I'm going to start going by Enrique. Now, I don't mind if people call me Henrik or Henrique or Henrique. Those are all correct pronunciations. It's just my preferred pronunciation is going to be Spanish. It's, you know, and and I and much like you, I'm not going to be a jerk. If somebody like says, hey, Henrik, I'm going to be like, hey, what's up? I know they're talking to me. You know, if somebody says, hey, Henrique, I'm going to be like, yeah, it's fair. Your language has an H in it. In my in my culture, the H is strictly ornamental. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, you know, I, I but if somebody says, excuse me, how do you pronounce your name? Then I'll say, oh, Henrique. But if they just say Henrique or Henrik, I'm going to be like, yes, because I have no reason to be a jerk. I have no reason. And I'm not offended by different pronunciations. But I've also as time has gone on and Hispanic culture has become much more uh, a thing in, in the United States. More, more and more people were saying Enrique or Henrique, and I was correcting them to the sort of wrong pronunciation. And I was like, wait, this is backwards. <laughs> I, I started going by Henrik to make it easier for people to pronounce my name. And now I'm doing the opposite. I may am confusing them when they read my name because they're more culturally aware. So, yeah, so uh, this is a long winded way of saying you gave me a little bit of courage that I really needed to feel like it's okay to kind of make a decision like that in my thirties, because it's not selfish. It's just a part of expressing who I am. And, um, and I've been trying to embrace the cultures that I, you know, grew up in and that I'm from because I'm, I'm proud of them. 
So, yeah. Yeah, it's always never too late to start your own cultural journey. And I've talked about this on Twig for many months to a year now. I'm glad I'm learning my ways. I'm glad you're starting to learn your cultural ways, your background, embracing who you are, who you were always meant to be. I'm very glad that I could be a very small part of that. So, Enrique, I'm very glad to meet you. I'm very glad that we are now friends. We can now honestly say that. Oh, definitely. Now that we've hung out for an hour. <laughs> Absolutely. So, guys, we are going to wrap things up here. So, um, if people wanted to find more information about you, Dave, the show, and your other podcast, where would they have, have to go? They'd want to go to my hilariously named official website, which is incrediblyhandsome.com. <laughs> if you go to incrediblyhandsome.com, you'll find information about all of my po podcasts, including Welcome to Primetime. And if you want to just check out Welcome to Primetime, it's actually at freddysnightmares.com because that was available. So I grabbed it. <laughs> That's amazing. So guys, be sure to check out their stuff. You can find them on every major podcasting platform. I personally listen to them on Spotify. New episodes of Welcome to Primetime drop on Tuesday. So be sure to be checking out that. And if you happen to live in the United States, you can watch along on Tubi.tv. Or if you have a VPN, you can do it that way. Hey. Uh, so anyway, guys, we are out of here. So for This Week in Geek, we have been your cue Enrique uh, Enrique <laughs> I have been Mike the Birdman saying Freddy away <laughs> at no point in your rambling incoherent response were you even close to anything that could be considered a rational thought thanks for listening to this episode of This Week in Geek Hungry for more? Check out our website at thisweekingeek.net. You can subscribe to the podcast, browse our Twitter and Instagram, and leave your thoughts on today's topics. If you'd like to give us some feedback, send us an email at feedback at thisweekingeek.net. Tune in next time, and remember, lower your shields and surrender your listenership. We would be honored if you would join us. Thank you for your cooperation. Good night.